0: I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter twelve. We're going to be doing a a, like a mini series on the topic of our commitment to Jesus and to His body. And so, I want to just turn to ask you to turn Romans twelve verses one and two, which are familiar verses. We'll reach back into another portion of Romans, but I want this to set the tone for our discussion on the topic of commitment to God. And then to his work. Romans 12 beginning in verse 1. Therefore Paul says. I urge you brothers. In view of God's mercy. That's expressed through chapters 1 through 11. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Can I just say this as a starting point this morning? That text contains a shocking call give your bodies as living sacrifices okay that is a that is a a radical call sounds i think at a certain level a little bit too radical maybe a bit over the top to our ears today right a living sacrifice the idea and terminology used here is simply that of taking a ram or a lamb and placing it upon the altar it is a radical picture that paul raises here To, if you will, shock us and call us to the kind of living that God actually envisions for His church. God is not delicate when He calls us to commit it. He is strong. And so I think we need to be willing to, at times, challenge each other. This call for sacrifice is a a call to die. It's a call to surrender, to give yourself up... As a sacrifice, and with the Old Testament pictures in mind, that would not be a retrievable or returnable sacrifice. When something in the Old Testament was placed onto the altar as a burnt offering, it was utterly and completely consumed. And that is the picture that Paul here is evoking in our minds. Now, it's a a picture that follows teaching of chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans. Okay, which is, if you will, a a deep theological treatise that Paul is writing, very heavy, logical, reasonable explanation of what Christ has done for us. All right, that's what this text is all about. Following that, he says, therefore, in light of this discussion, lay yourself on the altar of God. So behind this call is deep theology. And what is Paul doing? Paul is building a bridge between what we believe and how we live, okay? And sometimes people talk about their, their creed or their doctrinal statement and then their practical theology. All right, in this text, what is Paul doing? Paul is saying that how we live on a daily life, our conduct should be deeply affected by what we believe. What we believe, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. How we live, okay, is expressed in chapters 12 through 16. So that God is never teaching us for the sake of giving us more knowledge. He is teaching us with the aim and goal of transformation. That's what we do here on Sunday mornings. In what we sing and in what we teach, the aim is not so that we would have a greater grasp intellectually on what God has done. No, the aim is that as we grasp what God has done, we look at this radical call and say, you know what? That makes sense. In light of what God has done for us, He deserves our all. He deserves our very, very best. So, this discussion about practical Christian living begins with a focus on relationships at two levels. Okay? Obviously, verses 1 and 2 are talking a lot about us giving something, presenting something to God. So there is this... Vertical relationship that we experience with God and that we maintain with God that then begins to do what? It then begins to flow into the horizontal level or our human relationships. Okay, if my relationship with God is not surrendered, I will find it hard to love my wife as I should. If my relationship with God is not solid, I'm not going to find it easy to love my enemies. Okay, but if this relationship is in a proper standing, guess what happens? It reorients our relationship to everything and to everyone around us. Okay, but the first thing Paul does is he takes two verses to to send a bullet at the issue of personal sacrifice and commitment and relationship to God that will then leak over into the commitments that we experience towards each other in the body of Christ. Now... I believe this call is radical because it aims to confront casual or cultural Christianity. Okay, and we can drift into this, can't we, after time. You find this as you read the book of Revelation, that the church in Ephesus had lost its first affections, its first love for Christ. Okay, and and, and what happens to us in in, in America where we have a lot of information and Christian music and Christian teaching, what do we become? We become nice Cultural Christians who lack something radical in their commitment. And what's the result? The result is that the church becomes weak and our impact on the world around us as light becomes almost indiscernible. Okay, if you if you ever sit down and just do basic statistical study of, of a county like Warren County, and you look at the number of people that attend evangelical Bible preaching churches, you will find that the percentage is abysmally low, shockingly low. And you ask yourself, is it for lack of churches in terms of number? The answer is no. Well, then, then what, what's wrong? Why aren't we impacting our neighborhoods? I thought about this morning, that this morning personally. Why is it that we have so little impact in our sphere of influence? in our workplaces, in our relationships. And I think the answer is that a lot of times we have settled for a, a casual or cultural Christianity that is not transformative and sacrificial. That there, There's nothing about it that would catch the eye of a watching world. And I believe this is a text that calls us to a level of sacrifice that is radical to give yourselves, literally, to surrender yourself to God, and then to allow God to utterly and completely transform and reorient how you think about life. In the book of Acts, it says this. It says that when the believers came to certain regions, people in town would say, those that have turned the world upside down have come here. Meaning, when Christians were present... It wasn't cultural Christianity, comfortable Christianity, casual Christianity. It was deeply committed to the things of God in a way that was transforming the lives of individual believers who were then rubbing against others as salt and light and bringing about a radical transformation in cities and in towns. That's what God has in mind for us as a church family. He doesn't want us to be here simply existing. He wants us to be agents of change in our community. And I believe that becoming an agent of change, moving from, from casual to critical Christianity, begins with, at this on this plane, does God have all of me? Am I truly and completely given over to Him? Or am I playing at the Christian life? In verse 1, Paul starts by saying, Therefore I urge you brothers and the word here is, is it's used of a coach kind of rallying the team in the fourth quarter to get them to do their best it's the term that would be used of a general sending his soldiers into an army i urge you there's there's a sense of urgency that is present in this call because this for paul is vitally important in terms of the nature of our christian lives So what I want to do is I want to work through this text looking at two fundamental or primary thoughts. Okay, the first one is the idea of surrender and the second one is the idea of transformation. Okay, surrender that ultimately leads towards a transformation of our lives. So let's look first at this idea of a call to surrender in verse one. Paul says, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy to Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Alright, now let's just try to unpack this real quickly this morning. Why should I surrender myself to God? Why should I why should I live out this picture? of an animal being placed upon an altar and being utterly consumed so that the the, the smoke that rises from it in the Old Testament is talked about something that is pleasing to God because what was given was pure and blameless and fully devoted to God. Okay, why such a strong and what what would cause people to give themselves so fully to an objective, to an aim, to a call, to a person like God? What What would motivate that? And the way that Paul describes it is this. He says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. All right, so Paul gets right to the point. The reason we should give ourselves to God, the reason we should surrender in a radical way that seems a little bit radical and dangerous, is because of the mercy of God displayed towards us. Now, what is mercy? All right, what is mercy? Mercy is the kindness of God that is expressed. Towards those who are in a miserable state. Okay, the kindness of God expressed towards those in a miserable state. That is, it is expressed towards those who are deserving of the exact opposite. Let's see, what I deserve from God is not kindness and love. Do I need it? Absolutely. Okay, desperately, I need it. Okay, but do I deserve it? Can I say, God, you owe me. And I think the answer from Scripture is abundantly clear. Romans 3 in verse 10. Just listen to this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Okay, that means for all of us in this room, here's our common ground. That all of us fail to keep the moral law of God. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is none that does good, not even one. Okay? Now that's, that's comprehensive. Okay? So every person who makes up humanity has a common characteristic, and that is that we fail to measure up to... The standard of God's justice and holiness. The result of that is that the wages of our rebellion against God is death. That's what we deserve. But in his mercy, what did God do? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take what you and I deserve upon himself, upon his perfect sinless life. He takes the wrath of God that we deserve and offers to us a gift of eternal life. The mercy of God then is what? It is the act of God by which he takes from me the judgment that I deserve and gives to me the gift of cleansing and eternal life. Paul says, in light of this radical transformation that comes to us through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, we should give ourselves fully to God. So the motivation for surrender is that God has loved us so much. That he has taken away the wrath that we deserve and made us sons and daughters of God. Now, there's a certain level at which you might say, is that not a little dangerous? If God is so loving, won't people become relaxed and a little bit reckless in terms of their moral life? And the answer to that question, I think, is yes, at times that does happen. Okay, but there is no greater motivation, no stronger pull to righteous living than a proper understanding of the mercy of God. At times, is it abused? Yes. There are times that Christians will think, if I do this, I can be forgiven for it, so I'm going to go and do it again. In Romans 6, what does Paul say? God forbid that we would think that way. Why? Because he believes that the love of God for us is the most transformative force on planet Earth. When we understand that the judgment that was heading for us was deflected onto someone else, mercy of God, what should it produce within us? It should produce within us a sense of gratitude. So that Paul would later say, along the lines of this idea, that there is no greater incentive for holy living than the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, he says, The love of Christ constrains us. That is, it it binds us to the task of Christian living. But what else does it do? If you think about the love of God, how much He cares for you, it will also do this. It will also restrain inappropriate living and thinking in your life. Okay, when you rightly understand how much, how vast, how great the love of God for you is, you will find that it becomes a constraining influence to tie you to the task but it will also restrain you. And for this reason, I think we could say that a lot of times people read through chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans and find it to be dry theology. But what's the aim of it all? Where is Paul moving with with Romans 1 through 11? Here's where Paul's moving. He's moving towards doxology. So that when you get to the end of chapter 11, look at what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been His counselor? Where do things this wonderful come from? They originate in the heart and mind of God. It wasn't human beings sitting down and saying, you know, we've got to figure out a way to get out of our problem. No, it was God in His infinite mercy putting forth a plan that would stun, shock, and amaze sinners and draw them. To want to know Him and draw those that know Him to live a life that is utterly devoted and surrendered. Verse 35, he says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things related to what? Related to the Gospel. To Him, Paul then says, be glory forever and ever. And see, what is it saying? Theology didn't bore the Apostle Paul. Theology transformed him. Understanding God's love and grace and mercy had a dramatic, life-changing effect on Paul that leads him to this call for a full surrender. I want you to look at the nature of this surrender. The motive is the mercy of God. The nature of the surrender that he calls for is that it is a bodily surrender. Right? In view of God's mercy, brothers, I urge you, offer your body. Some of your translations say, yourselves. Okay? Now, the word in the original is the idea of body, but he, he's, he's using the word body as a picture of the instrument in which you live your life. Okay, now we understand that the body is the physical part, soul is the eternal, in, eternal, immaterial part of us, but we live our lives out in a body, right? So, if you read through the book of Psalms, what does the psalmist say? He says, My upraised hands are an evening offering. Okay? And what does the psalmist mean by that? Okay, what he's saying is, These hands are the means by which I live my life, it, it determines the things I do. And in, in an agricultural setting like that, hands were, were, were everything in life emanated from them. Everything you did was related to them. Okay? Paul expands the image. Don't just present your hands to God. Present your body to God. Present your entire existence to God. That's the idea. So what's the calculation here? Why does Paul use this image? Okay, here's what I believe. I believe this image of putting your body on an altar is intended to shock believers. It's intended to say God deserves everything from you. God deserves every aspect of your life. Your thinking, your sexuality, your work, your pleasure, your entertainment, everything is given over to Him. Because when you give your body to God, there's nothing left to give. And so that's why Paul, I think, talks about this as as an extremely personal, uh, radical picture of giving ourselves to God. Now, This should not surprise us if we're familiar with the Gospels, right? Because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, what should they do? They should deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. Okay? So engage in a relationship with Jesus after what? After saying goodbye to your own plans and desires. And after taking up a cross, and what was the cross? A cross was a place where human bodies were hung to annihilate and undo them. That's the picture. So when Paul, Paul, Paul picks this up, anyone that would be familiar with the Gospels would immediately understand that this call that Paul is giving is a call to die to self and to live for God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said, when God bids a man When he invites him and says, come, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. That is shocking. Right? Because we see people that do suicide bombings. And what do you think in your mind? I think, what a waste. How sad. Why? Because it is a life offered up for a goal that is not worthy. It is a destructive aim and purpose. But when we give ourselves to God, what is the aim? The aim is that God, whether by life or by death, might be glorified and that His name might be known and that His salvation might go to the ends of the earth. That happens when the church commits to a radical surrender that is, in this context, described as total or bodily. And we live in an age in which we call people to give their lives to God, right? Right? And somewhere along the way, I grew up in a context where we you always, you know, you need to give your life to Jesus. There's truth to that. But the call of Jesus goes deeper, doesn't it? The call of Jesus says, give me your entire existence. And that's where Paul picks up on here. He wants them to know that this call is comprehensive. Okay, it covers the entailments of the entirety of our lives. The next thing in this text is fascinating. He says, give your bodies as living Sacrifices. Okay, and again, what do you have? You end up with a a fascinating picture of the nature of the Christian experience. Okay, and of the nature of the kind of giving that Paul is calling for here. It is a living sacrifice in contrast to Old Testament sacrifices and burnt offerings. All right, in old testament sacrifices, it was put there, it was utterly consumed, and on to the next sacrifice. Here the sacrifice is living, it's active. So what is God saying? God's saying, I want the entirety of your life as it is being lived today. Where is the altar upon which we lay our lives? Okay? I think that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Where is this altar that I lay myself down on on a daily and regular basis? All right, can I suggest this to you? It's in your local church. It's in your home. It's in the school that you attend. It's when you sit down to watch TV. When you sit down to have a meal, this is a constant offering of ourselves, a laying out of ourselves before God so that 1 Corinthians 10.31 becomes true. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And see, the way you please God in the Old Testament setting was you would bring sacrifices that were without blemish. They were pure. They were living. They would die as a sacrifice, and then they were offered up to God. All right, what does this text say? It says, offer yourselves to God as living sacrifices that are holy, that are pure, not seconds, but are very best given to God. Okay, that's what he wants. That's what he desires. And I think we can say from this text very, very clearly, it's what he deserves. First Corinthians six, verse 19 and 20. The apostle Paul says this. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the living spirit, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your what? In your body and in your spirit, because it all belongs to God. You were bought with a price. Now, folks, I think when we, when we start to look at and examine the nature of our Christian experience, what we're going to begin to realize is Jesus Christ has purchased us. We are His. And He calls us to do what? To give ourselves in full surrender back to Him in response to the mercy that He has shown to us. Now the last thing that Paul says about this surrender is, this radical surrender, is, is that it is your, end of verse one, it is your spiritual act of worship. Okay? Now, some of your translations say it is your reasonable act of worship. And the, 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 the purpose for that word reasonable is that it, it, in the Greek it is this, it is logikon. Okay? It is a logical response to everything that God has done for you in Jesus. So, People say, well, Pastor Tim, why, why do we get so excited about, about sacrifice and about giving ourselves fully to God? Because it is the only rational response to the radical self-giving of Jesus. Right? We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. How did he love us? He gave his life as a wrath-removing sacrifice. Mercy. And when we understand that, what does it do? It motivates us to be more fully devoted To his cause. Emotions are part of our Christian experience. Okay? What you sense and what you feel as the word of God is preached. And what you sense and you feel as worship is is given to God in song. What you feel is powerful. But it would not be powerful if it wasn't related to truth. Okay? And I think it's important that we understand this. That our relationship to God is not merely one of emotion where I kind of get torqued up, fireside at a camp meeting and I throw a twig into the fire saying, this is a picture of my full surrender to God. In the emotion, no. You know what I need to have? I need to have a point in my life when the grace of God shone through and converted me. But then as I grow, I grow in an understanding of all that Christ has done for me. This is what fascinates me personally that we can be far into Christ, years into our relationship with Christ, and still be coming to understand more clearly the, the, the various manifold nature of the grace and mercy of God. It just comes clearer and clearer, and we see it impacting and affecting our lives in more and more significant ways. In this text, Paul is expanding worship to all of our life. A, a, a worship that is not simply the experience of joy in Christ, but a worship that involves the laying down of our lives on the altar as a sacrifice in response to the love of God that overwhelms, constrains and restrains his children. So the first thing we see in the text is a call to surrender. That surrender is radical. And then briefly this second thought in verse 2. And I believe this This flows out of one to the other, okay? Once our life is fully given to God, surrendered, what do we want Him to do? We want Him to take the life that we have offered to Him and to completely and radically change it so that we are no longer casual Christians, but we are critical Christians, okay? Meaning our lives, our experience is meant by God to make a difference. So this call to transformation, verse 2, do not conform any longer... To the pattern of this world. To the, to the shape, to the ideology, to the thinking of this world. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what does this text give us? This call to transformation. It gives us a warning. And then it gives us an encouragement. Alright? Why? Because we live in a world... That Jesus said has the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There are, if you are striving to live your life for the glory of God, there is plenty to distract you from devoted Christian living. All right? That's that's just the world that we live in. We live in a world that blunts the pursuit of holiness, that minimizes the importance or necessity of it. Why? Because we live in a world that is very iffy in regards to morality and clarity, right? See, the most dangerous thing that you can do as a Christian is to express your concrete opinions about biblical morality. Because when you do that, what happens? You're seen as intolerant and dangerous at times, right? So what do we do? we kind of get quiet about our convictions. And when you get quiet about your convictions, what happens? They become indiscernible. They become muted because we don't see the value of them and the necessity of standing for them and in them. So here's the way it works. In the world that we live in, boundaries of morality continue to be moved. Okay, And what happens historically is this. If, if, if historically... What was considered morally appropriate on TV was X. Okay? But then the world moves the standard and says, okay, now these sorts of things will be appropriate. Okay? Now, before the world was here, and where was the church? The church was over here. Okay? The world moves over here and says, well, actually, this is also okay now. What happens? What happens is this. The church tends to move from its original position to the world's previous position. And what are we doing? We're accepting a standard that in the past we knew was not appropriate. Okay? And, and what's happening? The world is making its impression on us rather than us making our impression on the world around us. All right, and so, and so that's the kind of call that Paul is giving here. He's saying don't conform any longer, which means that some within the church were doing what? They were allowing the world and its vague morality To influence and shape the church's morality. And the result is what? The church becomes casual and loses its critical impact. Okay, so Paul, in a sense here, is is giving to the church a warning to resist the pressure to become like the world. It's why Marcus Barth, in his commentary in Romans, said this. He said, the Christian ethic is a great disturbance Right, the Christian ethic, when you find someone who is really striving to live according to God's standards of morality, it is a great disturbance. You will become, in your sphere of influence, a problem. All right, how many of you want to be a problem? Well, not many of us. Why don't we want to become a problem? Because we don't have our body on the altar. Okay, when you live an altered life, that is yourself given to God. It becomes easier to be a disturbance because you've already given up the need for people to like you and love you. <laughs> okay? Well, what happens? Many of us say this is my life and I'm protecting my life and my sphere of influence. And the word of God, what is it? It comes out and it challenges us. It is a great disturbance. And I think we need to be aware that there is in the church a creep, okay, of worldliness. I don't mean an individual, like a weird person either, okay? I mean, the worldliness creeps, all right? The, the world moves to here, and the church says, okay, then we'll go to here. And then the world moves further away, and what does the church say? Well, okay, this must be okay now. And, and what is the standard of righteousness that we're living by? The standard of righteousness that we're living by is the standard of a fallen world. And we feel that we're okay if in terms of our entertainment choices, we're not where the world is. I mean, we're not like that. But that's not the question we should be asking. Okay, Because often the difference between us, the church, me, and the world is almost indiscernible. Why? Because we don't want the radical life. We don't want the altered life. I was talking to a young lady from our church a week ago. She was talking about her experience watching the Super Bowl knew halftime was coming, and knew it was going to be a wonderful family show. Okay? And she said to her boyfriend, I feel extremely uncomfortable sitting next to you and getting ready to watch what's coming. wow, and the boyfriend graciously said, I don't want to watch it, let's not watch it. Now, I'm going to guess something, okay, that most of us have experienced so much creep in terms of the standards of the world that it is possible for us to watch something like that and say, well, that's just the world, that's just the way the world entertains. And I think that's dangerous because I can't have a critical impact. I can't be fully surrendered to God if I'm allowing the world to affect my thinking and the absolute standards by which I live my life. And you know what God wants to do? He wants to awaken the church to righteousness. And he calls us to sin not. And in that text, what does he say? For some do not have the knowledge of God. They don't know God. They don't know that he makes a difference in lives because they don't see a difference in our lives as the church. And what does he do? He calls us to a stronger devotion, to a deeper commitment, radical, almost dangerous in the eyes of the world around us. That's the way this text would be read. Offer your body completely. To, oh, You know what? You've got to be a little bit moderate. Everything in moderation. Don't be so over the top in your Christianity. I think Paul would say to us that, quoting from John Stott, that a chameleon takes its color from its surroundings. But a Christian, a Christian should take their color from the absolute truth of God's word. That's what should shape our thinking. It's what should guide our entertainment choices. It should affect everything about our lives. It is to this that God calls us. And then Paul gives an encouragement at the end of this. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's, by the way, the work of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Okay, The, the the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He changes you. And he comes in to to teach you about Jesus, and to shape Jesus in you. That's the work of the Spirit of God. He comes to make a difference. He comes to raise us to become people that are critical in terms of their impact in the world. Be transformed. This is the encouragement. Watch for the creep of the world. But in this idea of surrender and transformation, be utterly given over to the shaping work of God in your life. It's a passive present. It's God is doing a work, surrender to that work of God so that it will come to completion in your life. He is actively seeking to make you like Jesus so that as part of the bigger picture of his body, we will become strong. Because folks, here's the conviction we need to have. If we want the Church of Christ in Warren County to make a difference, it will not happen because the church together says, we're going to make a difference. It will happen as individuals yield themselves to the power of the work of the Spirit of God. And those individuals that are yielded to the power of the work of the Spirit of God come together to make a stronger, devoted, committed body of Christ. And then what will happen is this. The light will brighten. And people will want to know, what do you know that I don't know? And who do you know that I don't know? Because they see you living a life that is discernibly different. Not odd. Not, you know, necessarily strange, but they should look at your convictions and your commitments and say, you know what? There is something different about you. And folks, this can happen for young people too. This isn't just something for adults. This is for young people because you are constantly, I talk to kids that are in college, you are constantly pressured to be made in the image of the world around you to be a good citizen. The call of Christ is not to be a good citizen. The call of Christ is to be a radically devoted Christian. And it is a radically devoted Christian that will make a difference in the world that God has called us to live in. So I give you this challenge this morning. Meditate on what Christ has done for you. Think about the mercies of God. Let it it soak into a point where you start to feel in your heart, you know what, God? Since you've done that for me through Jesus, I surrender i give up control of my life and i willingly take my life and i say god this is for you and i give it over to him and i ask him to begin to do a glorious and powerful thing in my life and then allow the spirit of god to apply the truth of his word to your life and let it affect your viewing let it affect your thinking Let it affect how you respond to people at work. Let the Spirit of God take the Word of God. and, And as that life is on the altar, He wants to make it what will glorify Him. So yield it over. Give it over to Him. And allow God to change how you think. Because out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, the mouth speaks. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Put your life on the altar. And say, God, work in me. In light of all the love that you've shown for me, I give myself over more and more completely to you as my Savior and Lord of my life. Let's bow our heads together this morning in prayer.